fantasy and some flights. Exploring the realms of beer, board games, books, and bourbon. Welcome to another episode of the Fantasy and Some Flights podcast. I'm Nelson. I'm Dalton. And tonight we've got an episode, a book episode. I get, well, I guess it's kind of a, a it's kind of a hybrid. hybrid. Yeah, kind of a it's hybrid. Kind of a hybrid. But I okay. You know what? I introduce the topic every single time. Dalton, what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about kind of the the crossover from fantasy novels into like DMing, so like dungeon mastering in a role playing right. game sense. So we're talking about how how do we as readers take the elements from books that we're seeing and learning and that we like, and how do we incorporate them into like role playing games, like like your Pathfinder, Dungeons and Dragons, whatever whatever your favorite you know cup of tea is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I totally think that. The more I read, the better DM I become for multiple different reasons. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to kind of break those down, talk through them a little bit. And then I've been kind of, you know, building a list of some books that I have read in the past that I think really have helped my DM. Or I guess we should say GM because DM is copyrighted by Dungeons and Dragons. So oh, my okay. game mastering ability. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so it's actually, now, it's actually DM TM. <laughs> <laughs> I started off explaining the episode, so you have to start off the flight section. That sounds fair. That sounds fair. So today, I, I I went to the liquor store. I'm still, you know, being very bad about my diet, so I am not back on the low carb thing. And so I plan on doing that on Monday. Today is Thursday, so I have a couple <laughs> of days to still be bad. Yep. And I've been saying this for a couple weeks now, so we'll see if that actually happens. But I wanted to do a I, I wanted to do a beer, and I picked this beer up not remembering if i had ever had it on the podcast before and i it turns out i have but it was super early on it was on episode seven during the deck building session okay and this is my favorite beer and it is my uh, it's a four cheers so i literally followed the model and if i see it i buy it (laughs) with the four cheers and so this is space station middle finger from three floyds yeah and so this is an ipa that i found Basically, when I was looking for zombie dust, so zombie mm-hmm. dust is probably Three Floyd's most, I don't know if popular is the right word, but most like renowned beer yeah. that they have. Yeah. And this is the other, or an other IPA that they have that was more readily available than zombie dust used to be. Mm-hmm. And so I picked it up and I realized that I liked it a lot more than zombie dust. But Space Station Middle Finger is a, it, it's a round uh, a 6.5% APV. Uh, the IBUs are in 65, so it's not super bitter. Mm. Uh, well, okay, it is bitter, but it's not super bitter for like an IPA. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so it's pretty nice. The SRM's are around a 13, so it's got a lighter hint than a lot of these like hazier, darker IPAs. Mm-hmm. The, the reason I like it so much is that the, the hops really kind of don't hit you as much as a lot of IPAs. It feels mm-hmm. a lot nicer. And usually the way that IPAs do that, they balance out the hoppiness, is they add more of a fruit flavor, um, which I, I'm not the biggest fan of. I do enjoy that, but it's not, you know, I'm not going to go out and say, I want a fruity IPA. I'm just, that's yeah. not the type of beer I like. And Three Floyd's Space Station Middle Finger somehow tends to avoid that, where it's not super bitter, but it still has this IPA, but it's not a fruity IPA. Okay. And I just, I'm, I'm really- Is it like I, maltier then? It, it's a- you know, it's got some malt. It's got some malt. It kind of like, you know, it, it feels, I, I described like the taste of malt as kind of like, it feels nice going down your throat. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's how I kind of like think of malts. Okay. Um, as like kind of like a heavier, like it, it feels like it's a little bit more substance to the beer. Sure. And so, yeah, it does have a little bit more of that. I wouldn't say it's overly malty in the sense of it's not going to, it's not a dark beer in, in any sense of the word. But this is uh, Space Station Middle Finger. It's my favorite beer of all time. I figured, I well, I didn't want to go through our show notes at the liquor store because I yeah. was already kind of running late. So I was just like, you know what? If I if I have had it, it's been before we even implemented the cheers system. That's so right. I have to bring it back on to say it's a four cheers. So to officially say tonight, it's a four cheers. <laughs> exactly. So tonight I am drinking Space Station Middle Finger by Three Floyds. Nice. Company. Nice. Well, cheers, buddy. <laughs> cheers. What about you? <laughs> I am tasting Boondocks uh, American Whiskey. This is a, it's one I picked up in Colorado, but it is a Bardstown, Kentucky uh, distillery. And so it's- I've been cla- to Bardstown before. Yes. <laughs> this is not a uh, Bardstown whiskey, right? Or Bardstown Brewing or whatever. <laughs> yes. Oh, that was, that was um, tough. Which is named after Bardstown, but this is like a different, a different uh, 
I did look that up just to be sure. I was like, is this actually owned by Bardstown? Because like we talked about in like a Fireside <laughs> episode, sometimes they do, right? Sometimes they own multiple uh, labels right. and they just, they don't put like the same, they don't advertise necessarily that it, that they own this label. Um, but no, this is, this is this is not owned by them. It is an American whiskey because they age it in used bourbon barrels. Um, so they okay. basically created a bourbon through all of the necessary steps, except that if you remember going back to our like basics, basics of bourbon, right? TM. Uh, that, <laughs> that it has to be a new aged, newly charred oak barrel. And this one is not. This is a used bourbon barrel. Um, and so they did that intentionally. They kind of wanted, first of all, it's, it's, it reduces the price because they can just reuse a barrel so they don't have to buy a new barrel. Um, so it reduces the price of the bottle, um, but it also kind of mellows it out. And we know from bourbon that like a charred oak barrel is going to have like really strong like smoke and like oaky woody flavors. Um, and it's typically going to be like a darker color. Right. This is a much lighter whiskey in color because it doesn't get that like darkness from the new smoke. It's already kind of been absorbed by whatever bourbon was in it beforehand. And so I picked it up like going back to, I guess, like how to buy whiskey like that you aren't familiar with. Um, I picked it up because I was kind of interested in that as like, okay, this is going to be a mellowed out bourbon. Right. If we take away the smoke flavors, like what is left, it's going to be like a lot of like sweet flavors like vanilla, especially this one. They're using like 80 to 90 percent corn. So they're already kind of doubling down on that sweetness. And it's aged for 11 years on the bottle. Um, so it has a oh wow yeah nice long aging which again I think they did because they weren't using a new barrel right so they wanted to give it some time to kind of like kind of come into its profile a little bit because bourbon cool. like yeah you can you can take less time with bourbon because you're like kind of sledgehammering in all this flavor right with a, with a new <laughs> barrel right and I had read reviews it is I think a lot of people really like it it's highly not maybe not highly highly acclaimed but it like has a lot of good reviews out there as I was looking into it it's done by a master distiller David Shurik which I had recognized the name and I didn't know at first and I had to look up but he's the guy who did Woodford Reserve or he was at oh, least involved okay. with that team yeah. personally it's not my favorite but I think that it's okay it's just I think the like <laughs> it comes across like the the strongest flavor that I can describe would be like kind of marshmallowy and that's okay I was not expecting from that, that. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Here's a marshmallow whiskey. Like if you if someone handed me a marshmallow whiskey, I'd be like, that's disgusting. Like I don't want to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, I don't I don't think I like that. Yeah. That's gonna give me a hangover. Right, exactly. And it doesn't taste like marshmallow flavored whiskey. It's just like that's like the most prominent like flavor I could describe it as. Okay, yeah. But to me, I, I think personally it also that kind of like sweet marshmallowy flavor kind of becomes a little artificial and it tastes kind of like almost like rubbery or like kind of like an eraser, like the smell of like an eraser, like a little bit like that. So for me, it's kind of become one that I just like, I, I'm tasting it if I just want to have like something to drink, you know, because it's like, I don't mind it. It's just like, maybe not my right, favorite and yeah. I maybe wouldn't buy it again. Um, so probably a two cheers, you know, it's like, okay, I could definitely see how some people would really enjoy it. And it is kind of a unique take and experience. I would love to see a lot of distilleries kind of try this, right? Take their bourbon barrels and reuse them and just make an American whiskey and see if it turns out okay. Age it for longer and see kind of, you know, I just think like 80 to 90% corn was just not the right call. Right. That's also such a tough, like mash mix to age for so long to turn yeah. out to be mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a big risk, right? Yeah, for sure. I just think they needed a different mash because I think like Scotch distilleries, they usually will buy used oak or used bourbon barrels to impart sweet flavors, right? To impart vanilla and like that sweetness from the oak um, because the bourbon is already taking kind of the hit of like the burn. Um, so it'll like, they should have known that going in, right? And so taking like one of the sweeter mash bills that you can create with 80 to 90% corn and putting it into a really sweet barrel is going to kind of create this like kind of toasted marshmallow type of profile which like again some people could like but i just personally didn't think it was a very wise decision so anyways i wanted to bring it up because i thought it was kind of like you can see kind of the story of why why i might have bought it right so these are some of the things that i'm at least looking for when like sitting yeah. in front of a bunch of bottles um so i kind of wanted to share that but this one specifically boondocks american whiskey didn't really do it for me that's unfortunate yeah i do have a i do have a question so mm -hmm. is there a specific bourbon that this distiller makes that then they use that bourbon's barrel for this or is it whatever bourbon barrel they have left over so yeah so they have like you know boondocks boondocks ride and they have like boondocks you know small batch they have a cask strength they also have like an eight-year port finish that I was like thinking i might try because i do like port finished barrels just in general interesting um yeah sorry i said small batch it's actually a, it just says i think it's labeled as straight 
whiskey, like just straight bourbon whiskey. Um, so I assume anyway okay. that they're just using some of these barrels that they have around for all these different agings. So we did miss a fireside episode, so I'm excited to get into the mind section because I got a couple of things to talk about. Yeah. So I, I've been doing a good bit of traveling, and in that I've been doing you know long car rides, audiobooks, but also I've been... I, I, I had talked a couple episodes ago how I'm reading more, so I'm also physically reading a little bit more. But I wanted to talk about an audiobook that I just finished, narrated by Will Wheaton, which was kind of fun. But yeah. it, uh, it, it's something that we've talked about on the podcast a little bit, but it was Ready Player Two. So oh, we, okay. <laughs> yeah, so my wife and I listened through Ready Player Two against some warnings from people. So <laughs> I, I heard <laughs> it is... I, I will go ahead and start out by saying it is not as good as Ready Player One. Okay. Do you want to give just so, a little bit of review just to make sure people yeah, know what we're yeah, absolutely. talking about? Ready Player One. Let's start with let's start there. So Ready Player One takes place a couple of decades into the future where humanity has kind of developed this virtual reality world. And so Earth has kind of gone to shit and people now live, work kind of in this virtual reality world where um, they can travel to different planets, they can go to Middle Earth, they can do D&D campaigns, so it kind of ties into our topic tonight. Yeah. Um, and and they, they just created almost like a, a, a fantastic environment where everyone has their own avatar and it's basically a giant video game and this is where people live. So if you've seen Sword Art Online, similar to that except no one's like, trapped right so right i was about to say there's, <laughs> no, no there's a is. whole like you know subsection of anime dedicated to this genre <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly the premise is is that the creator james halliday passes away and so he you know obviously is very very wealthy and he's created kind of this scavenger hunt to find three keys to whoever finds these three keys becomes his heir and inherits the company as right. well as the giant fortune yeah and so it's a little it's Willy following... wonka in that way <laughs> It's it's a fun story. I like yeah, I don't know sure. how to say it other than that. I mean, it's just it's a feel good story in that sense where it's just like, "Oh, cool. I can I can get along with this." But it follows a couple of different players all obviously trying to find the three keys. So, without spoiling anything from Ready Player 1 because I love Ready Player 1, I highly recommend you read the book and ignore the movie. It, without spoiling anything from that, Ready Player 2 kind of picks up um, a couple of years after the events of Ready Player One. Okay. And so it's kind of showing the repercussions of the events that happened at the end of Ready Player One. Okay. There, there's a there's some like new technology that allows ex- players to experience the game or I guess the world more fully. It's kind of talking about, you know, the earth is kind of dying, right? So how are they going to be able to sustain this um, what what are they doing? No one really cares because everyone's living in this virtual reality world, mm-hmm. and like the Earth is like dying because of pollution, global warming, everything. But they're just like whatever type thing. Kind of it really hits home, um, actually. So yeah, <laughs> minus I the bet. VR part. But it it kind of goes into that. There's a whole another kind of quest where they have to find seven shards. It follows the same kind of flow as the first book. Okay, but it just didn't feel as interesting or as fun to me okay um, as as the first book i i guess what i would like to say is i really like the ideas and the conflicts that were presented to humanity in the second book rather than i actually like the story so i like the very beginning i like the very end and i could kind of care less about the middle gotcha uh, like the actual questing like my my wife said it really well where it's Whereas the first book, you're kind of excited to see him run through this D&D campaign and like how he does it. And in the second book, it feels like they're just like reciting facts about the 90s to you. And it's just oh, like, okay, okay. like I, I can see where you're trying to do this. They had this whole like, they go to the world that's all dedicated to Prince. And it felt like that was just like nine hours long. Oh, and yeah. it was just like, oh, okay, let, let's go on. Yeah. And then they did the whole thing where this, this like super, this... This trope bothers me so much in books and movies where like we have two minutes and then there's nine minutes of movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> but they, they did that where there's two hours left. They had a deadline of two hours. And mm-hmm. then I think there was four hours in the book or something like that. And it was just yeah. Like, they, this is insane. In the two hours, a very small part of that two hours is they travel 60 miles on horseback. So it's like... <laughs> This, it's this taking you four hours to essentially up. tell me like an hour's worth of content. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's just like, okay, you you can't travel 60 miles on a horseback in two hours. Like that, (laughs) that's 30 miles an hour. It's virtual horseback. It's virtual horseback. It was shadow facts, which is kind of cool. But so, so, so maybe, maybe you can, but it was just like, it, it was frustrating. I'm glad I read it. The narration was great. It was Will Wheaton who he did a phenomenal job, but I think if you didn't love the first one, don't look at the second one. If you loved the first one, I think the second one is interesting just to kind of understand the concepts and the the author is Ernest Klein, kind of some of his ideas that he saw going forward. Mm-hmm. The ending actually is really cool. Um, it's a really cool twist. And so if you have read Ready Player Two, I want to talk to you about it. I Well, I don't know if it's a twist, but it's a really like interesting conclusion to the book okay. that I have never really thought of. It kind of like twists how how you would think about maybe like a sci-fi novel type thing. Yeah. So I I, I would be interested to talk to people about that because like I said, I like the ideas a lot more than I like the story. Yeah. I think the most disappointing thing to hear in there is that you felt that the like the 90s culture and references wasn't integrated as well as like the 80s cultures and references were in Ready Player yeah. One. Yeah. Um, Because that's really what I think made the book so like consumable, you know, Um, and and, like really made it set apart is that there was there was a ton of like, you know, uh, like nerd references, music references, like all of this, you know, disco and everything like all this culture was just kind of like poured into the book in a way that was like kind of meant to be a little like campy, but like in a fun way, you know, it was like making fun of itself a little bit and it made it really enjoyable. It wasn't like trivia night, you know, it wasn't like use the phrase like reciting a list of facts. Like it it wasn't quite that. It was just kind of like this immersive like culture that would, that made it really enjoyable and really fun. Um, So the fact that he kind of wasn't able to maybe recreate that successfully, I think is a really big red flag. It was a little upsetting. Mm -hmm. I did kind of go into it with the caution of other people who had read the book and they were like, it's not as good. Yeah. And so I did go into it kind of with a lower expectation, which I think helped. And so I'm trying to set that for you, listener, if you are going to read it. Go into it with a lower expectation. It's not going to be Ready Player One. Yep. But, eh, I mean, it's an easy listen. It's an easy read. So if yep. you have time, if you have a long car ride, it's you could you could pick worse books. Yeah. I think sequels to a this, – this, this is an example of a sequel to a book that wasn't designed to have a sequel. Right. Like yep. this yep. sequel was created because this movie or this book had enormous commercial success. It had the movie like I, like I just started to say um, and it, it got immensely popular. And so I don't know if it's quite a money grab. Like I don't know him well enough to know if it's a money grab, but it certainly looks like one. Right. Where it's like, yeah, this book, it, it, com- it completed. It did not need a sequel. And the elements that we liked about the first book with there being like the puzzle and the three keys or whatever, I think I struggled to see how that storyline could kind of be like recreated in a second book. Cause it felt like it just kind of like concluded, you know? And so it like to kind of tie that into something that I, that I've like just read. I just read, or actually I guess I'm still reading. I have like a couple hours left children of ruin, um, which is the sequel to children of time, um, which I've talked about. That's the book where um, there's like a, like an alien race evolved from like spiders from earth. Um, so they have this very different culture and there's this really enjoyable like clash between human culture and this like created like spider culture and kind of the struggles that they have in communication and just in differences of their, their races and how they think about things and approach problems and how they try to communicate and everything. And that was kind of the core of what made the book enjoyable. Right. And so his effort to translate that into a second book to kind of recreate the success of the first book, it kind of ends up feeling a little bit forced. I don't know if like Ready Player Two felt that way, but it felt like, is this really a realistic, you know, storyline for this like world that you've set up? Or is this just, you're kind of trying to like pigeonhole your story into something that's right. like kind of, maybe not recreating, but is at least having like too similar of a feel or like is too reminiscent of the book because you want people who like the first book to like the second one. So it's like, I understand where that comes from, but the feeling of it can be kind of like artificial if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very much like The Force Awakens where it's you have a formula that people obviously enjoyed with mm-hmm. A New Hope, right? And that movie feels like someone could just control C, control V, the storyline, yeah. changed the characters a little bit, updated the graphics, and it felt kind of like that, right? Like I, I enjoy The Force Awakens, um, not as much as the previous six movies, but... It felt like that. Like it's it's a nice movie. I I enjoy that Star Wars movie. And this is kind of how I felt about Ready Player Two. Or it sounds like how you're kind of feeling about Children of Ruin. Ruin. Yep, Children of Ruin. <laughs> yeah, I, think... I was like Children of Time, Children of 
<laughs> there's there's a lot of children of books. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, children of corn. I think maybe it's one. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, I love that book. Yeah, it's right, all about it's moonshine. Yeah. yeah, it's really it's really high. everybody gets drunk and has a good time. Yeah, um, but yeah, children of ruin. It's been. It's also. I think it just has a more. It has a much more like serious tone. Like there's like some really dark things that happen, kind of like surprisingly, and. I think the like audio, like the that's narrating. not something you want to be surprised by. Yeah, like I mean, the first Just one like, is oh, like, wow, we're doing this. Yeah, exactly. Like the first one's like, in t- like it's not like it's not a kids book, you know. Like it has adult themes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it's not like I, I think Children of Ruin crossed from that into like almost like horror a little bit, where interesting. Okay. Like there are well, parts and like visuals and like scenes that are like meant to be kind of like creepy like kind of scary weird okay yeah if you're not expecting to get into that that can be very jarring yeah yeah i think that's a good way to put it kind of like wow this is like did this really need to be like written this way you know like there's there's like <laughs> at one point where like one character is like kind of like psychotic and they're like repeating a line like over and over and it's like we're going on an adventure and it's just said like over and over <laughs> as they're like walking up to like murder somebody and you're like whoa <laughs> this, is, this is not okay. what i signed up for <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. Especially specifically because it's like being narrated to me, right? Like it's being read to me. So it's like <laughs> in my earbuds and I'm like, ah, like take it out. You know? <laughs> just, You're in the shower. Like I'm, I'm about to die. Right. I'm cool. like, this is on my way to work, you know? <laughs> Jeez. I show up to work in like a dark mood. And everybody's like, are you okay? It's like, no, <laughs> no, oh, off. <laughs> peeking out from the shower curtain. <laughs> Nobody's in here. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Um, and then there's also so, like these weird little parts where like there's something that's said that's like, I think that was supposed to be a joke, but like the tone that the narrator has to like have, <laughs> it's like, that wasn't funny. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like it might be funnier in a book, but like the narrator has like such a serious, like intense <laughs> tone because of the rest of the tone of the like book yeah. that there's these like things that come across as like a joke. And it's like, I don't think that was received very well. <laughs> Interesting. So you, you are still reading it. So you have a you have a little bit more to go. Yeah, and that's kind of the last thing I wanted to talk about is if you remember one thing I, I kind of lot about Children of Time is I think it has a really fantastic resolution. I think it ties together very nicely. It solves a problem in a way that like you wouldn't have really expected as like the reader, even though like the solution was potentially available to you as the reader. Like I I just personally didn't think of it, and I thought it was really well done. But now it's like it was such a good solution that like, and he's kind of like I said, he's kind of trying to recreate the problem. It kind of degrades degrades the solution if the if you're bringing back up the problem right it's kind of like why why does he not just reuse the solution like why don't they just do what they did last time you know <laughs> like why is that <laughs> right? not an option and so I, I don't know we'll see kind of how this one ends like if it ends in a different way if there's a different conclusion but it sort of like hasn't been justified to me like why the last one wouldn't work and maybe i just missed it but as far as i can tell it's kind of like okay like i don't know well i hope that gets revealed to you yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping so too. And I think it has a potential for it because like, again, it has kind of what seems to be like an impossible situation. So it could have a really good conclusion. Um, maybe in the next Fireside episode, I'll, you know, if we if it comes up, I'll, yeah. I'll let you know because um, I should be done with I'm it. I'm excited. But, yeah, but, I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of like Ready Player One. It's like definitely read Children of Time. I think it's phenomenal. Children of Ruin is kind of like, yeah, it's okay so far. <laughs> yeah. Just be ready for a horror <laughs> book that you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah, listen to it around the hours of noon to six right and that's about it right we're going on an adventure i don't like that all work and no play makes jack a dull boy Alrighty, i had one more thing that i kind of wanted to touch on sure and, and that is i i've been physically reading a couple of the novellas from kind of just across the cosmere so I just finished A Secret History, which you have talked about on the podcast before. That's the novella for the Mistborn series. Oh, you read um, that? You said you read it. This as a physical copy. I did. Dang it! Yes, because <laughs> because I couldn't. Yeah. So I remember you talking about the audiobook and it being super weird. Yeah. But I could not find the audiobook. Oh, really? And that's because and I talked to you about this, but there is no Secret History audiobook. It's all in that Arcadium Unbounded. Yeah. Audiobook where it, like. Right contains a couple of different novellas mm-hmm. and so i just didn't even like i was searching for it i couldn't find it so i was like i'm just gonna read it yeah but i just wanted to touch on that i there there's really nothing that i can talk about in that book 
without spoiling it. I know. It's hard to even talk about what the book is about. I don't think you can without spoiling it. I don't think I can. All I will say is that you need to read it after at least the third book. So the Hero of Ages of Mistborn. I think it is better if you have read the other three books that follow that book, the Wax and Wayne series. Mm -hmm. And then it is very good if you have read through the Stormlight Archives. Um, because there's a lot of ties between Stormlight Archives and Mistborn that that book bridges, that that book creates yeah. that bridge for. Yeah. There's also a lot of kind of description of the Cosmere, so the universe that Sanderson is building and like the creation of the Cosmere in this book, which is just not where I was expecting it. When I think mm-hmm. of novellas, I kind of think of books that are not crucial to read. They're kind of interesting because you like the world, you like the characters. And you're just like enjoying it. Yeah. But like, I'm like reading this. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like real stuff. Like what's going on? And so I just wasn't expecting that. And so if that's not been on your radar and you're a fan of the Cosmere, I highly recommend reading uh, A Secret History. Um, Especially since it's so short, you know, it's very consumable. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, the audiobook. I don't know how long it would be. Probably like six hours. Yeah, I think it was around six or seven. Yeah. Um, okay, oh, let me transition to the to the other novella that I've been sure, reading, which sure. is Dawn Shard, which is the novella for it's a novella for the Stormlight Archives, which takes place between Oathbringer and Rhythm of War. Cool. So between book three and book four of the Stormlight Archives, it came out after Rhythm of War, and so so far you do not have to have read Rhythm of War to read this. I don't know if that is true going forward, but mm. I'm about probably about. 70% of the way through. Okay. And, and it you, you don't need Rhythm of War to read it. Um, but it's following kind of a expe- expedition to go to a secret island to try and find riches and uh, a new Oathgate. But it follows Lopin. Like, Lopin is one of the main characters. Mm, yep. And Lopin is, like, the one-armed Hardazian man who's just, like... His character and, like, his personality just it provides just, like, that little bit of comic relief because I think of Stormlight Archives as a pretty dark book like it's not a horror book but it deals with some real issues like depression and and war and like a lot of things Mm -hmm. that fantasy does i think sanderson yeah yeah, absolutely which which a lot of fantasy novels deal with i think that sanderson does it in a way that it almost feels heavier somehow so this 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 book following lopin who provides that comic relief is just it's been a fun read oh cool um this one is not like a secret history. I don't think that it's given as much information about the Cosmere or anything like that. I would not say this is a necessary read, mm-hmm. um, but it feels very much like Edge Dancer, okay. which was another novella through the Stormlight Archives that it was cool to read. It gives you some background on some other characters, some like um, secondary characters, because apparently he can't write all the background in the 48-hour audiobook to all the characters. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's kind of a nice-to-read, interesting storyline, at least so far through 70% of the book. I don't know if that's going to change and there's going to be some big reveal, but it feels just kind of cool to get some background on some characters. And I, yeah, absolutely. I, I really enjoy novellas in that sense, where you don't have to read it to have the series be complete for you but if you really enjoy the series it gives you more substance to the right. series and so i you know like i've just been kind of going you know? through some no yeah they're like expansions yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it yeah but yeah so i i'm i'm enjoying that one good i didn't enjoy it as much as secret history but secret history was just kind of crazy so i need to share the file for um secret history's like audiobook just so you can like understand what i'm saying <laughs> when i yes i <laughs> if you because if you remember dear listener um, it, that's the book that um, was done as like an audio production like every like there was all these different voice actors and there was like theme music and if there was a battle scene there'd be like swords clanking in the background and like a guy would like be like this guy got stabbed and you'd be like oh and then he would like make dying sounds uh. and stuff yeah and it was just like really intense and really campy because they also like had this huge production cost. So they did not invest in really excellent voice actors. Um, and so that, that part also suffered. And so I just really want Nelson to experience that because I want to be kind of validated that I'm not crazy, that this is actually kind of like a, a, a disorienting way to listen to an audiobook. It's not actually very effective. I am ready to listen to that. Yeah. So let's transition over into our main topic, talking about the relationship between books that we read and in role-playing games. So I 
I, I kind of focus mainly on the GM aspect or the game master. And so right. if you're unfamiliar with role-playing games, the typical role-playing game has a game master who is facilitating the game. They're, they're setting the setting, giving the, the other people at the table who are normally called players obstacles. And so a, a, a very quick example would be like they're describing a scene. You're walking up through the woods. You know, all of a sudden you start hearing arrows whiz past you. What do you do? So that's kind of the role of the GM. Right. Uh, they are building a world and immersing the players sitting at the table in the world that they are either have created or are facilitating. And so we thought it was going to be kind of an interesting topic to talk about how books play a role in our GM styles. We have both GM games. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have GM'd. I think you've all you've only done homebrew stuff, right? That's correct. Yeah, I've never done like because a lot of uh, and what we mean by that, like a lot of Pathfinder or or D anD D, they will put out like books that are basically walking you through a campaign. So all of the world building, all of the story writing, that part is kind of done for you. Um, and, and you still have a, a major role in that as a GM. Um, you're not like totally just scripted every move that you make because you kind of have to like, you know, make game time decisions and stuff. You're kind of guiding the players through the story. But at least all the world building and the story building and all the enemies and all the bosses and all of the villains and everything, all of the and, you know, the the NPCs, the non-player characters um, in the towns, like towns maps are created for you, you know, like characters who run the taverns, all that's all, all done for you. Whereas homebrew is something that we just make up ourselves. Um, so I have never gone through the process of buying a book and leading a, uh, a campaign. I've, I've only done just like homebrew, making stuff up. And so my qual- my quality is significantly lower. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Yeah, but I've also um, only done like one shots. I've never like, um, and one shot we mean like sit down over like a weekend and complete it or sit down over a single night even yeah. and complete it. I've not done like you have leading like whole campaigns that take like years even. <laughs> They're never ending almost. Most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Too invested to um, end it now. Yes, I, that, that was a great summary. And I think that reading books helps in both cases. So just because the world is built for you doesn't mean that you're not going to get any benefit. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get any benefit out of reading books because so much of the world is thinking on your feet, describing descriptions yeah. and kind of how um, how to react. And so just because the bartender has been created for you, that doesn't necessarily mean you know how the bartender is going to act. Yeah. And so I guess one of the first points that uh, we can talk about is personalities or descriptions that you can pull from books and i think the more books that you read the more you get an understanding of different types of worlds different types of characters quirks so like i i have done this and i think it's 100 percent okay to do this but there are character traits that i really enjoy in books that i read that i have then given to characters i've created in my world and oh, so yeah. players don't necessarily know that you're giving them Vin's traits. So Vin's kind of this stubborn, um, hard-headed girl, mm-hmm. right? And I I will create a, a character, maybe, you know, maybe this character is running the local uh, tailor shop so that she's selling clothes. And I just, like, give her the personality of Vin. Mm-hmm. I give her a different name. But, like, I role-play through what I think Vin would act. And I think that really kind of helps the burden a little bit because yeah it is very hard to create ideas for characters right yeah for sure i think so, especially for you know folks like you and i that are that are not you know artistically minded right we're strong on the left brain weak yeah, on the right, right kind of thing we excel in like battle scenes and creating fair fights and creating fun and interesting like boss fights and stuff like that we can really play yeah. around with the mechanics of what the game will let us do we understand that extremely well but role playing games are are they're, they're 50-50 right and there may be even more like the first the first word is role right and playing like that's that's the point of the <laughs> yeah. thing and then like yeah it's a game there's a combat system but it's really just meant to facilitate a story like the story is the point and that's an area yep. where like we are you know creativity is we have a different type of creativity, right? We have a creativity in problem solving. We don't necessarily have a creativity in creating something from nothing, right? In, in creating in creating <laughs> right. ideas and characters and that sort of thing that can that can be more difficult for us. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. That's a that's a good way to like put yourself in a mindset where instead of like just saying like, oh, I'm going to create a character that has like a scar, you know, from a, a, a fight with a bear when he was younger or something, you know, like you can 
you and I can like, we can like maybe come up with some ideas for like what might make a good backstory. But in terms of how that character acts and talks and what they, how they would respond to a a player character, like who, you know, is just your friend across the table who's just going to do something random that you would have never predicted. And now you have to react in the way that you think this character would have reacted. That's a lot harder if you don't already have like an established character that you know very well that you can kind of draw from. So I think that's a really, a really smart tactic. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, And I I just wanted to reemphasize the the point that you just said there is a character that you've been with so much and so if you're like us and you read a lot of books which you probably do because you're listening to a book podcast right now you have a lot of characters that you know and it's a lot easier to think on your feet and role play one of those characters than come up with a new concept and what i have found in games and when i when i am gming a game is that uh, immersion does not necessarily come from the funny accents that a GM is doing. If mm. you can do it, great, but it's not something that I am strong at, and I feel like it it falls more to towards the satirical side whenever I'm trying to do these accents, and instead of like creating immersion, it kind of breaks immersion. Yeah, and so because it's like, um, oh, Nelson's they, doing this funny accent, <laughs> right? Yeah, and then I can never remember what that accent is. <laughs> um, so I find so, myself I typically don't do voices, but. If I remember, oh, I gave this person the Kelsier trait, mm-hmm. um, and I'm role playing this character as Kelsier. I, his name is Jim or whatever. <laughs> it's not Kelsier, but it, it helps me remember the personality and understand because you know I've had uh, books about Kelsier before. I know how he would react, and I can. It kind of helps me, and it also is more enjoyable to me instead of trying to figure out a random thing that I just created probably an hour beforehand. Yep. Instead, I was like, okay, how would Kelsey react? And I feel like that creates a more memorable and exciting moment for characters or for players. It's also kind of interesting. I haven't had this done, but I now that I've like put it out there, I'm wondering if um, when I'm GMing, if people are going to be looking for it and trying to identify what character I'm <laughs> role playing through the bartender. Yeah. And so now, now that that's out there in the world, I'm, I'm interested if people are going to start picking up on which characters I'm using. Yeah. Yeah. That's a funny thought, actually. So let's just like just like kind of stream of consciousness with me here for a second. Like what are some, you know, if you're asked off the top of your head, Hey, who, who makes some good characters like for NPCs, you know, like, Hey, I'm just going to base this character on like, what does that kind of like library like look like for you? Uh, So it's a lot. And it's actually something that I haven't done before, but I think it would be beneficial to write down. Yeah. And so I, I have, NPC names on the back of my GM screen, which the GM screen is what separates the game master from the players, so the yeah. players don't get to see all the spoilers. But I just have a list of a hundred names, and when I use one, I like right next to it. It's like, oh, this was the this was the random merchant that they saw on the street, yeah. and I just write that down. And so then that name is used. It'd be cool to write down a depository of different names yeah. um, of characters so that you can emulate those and maybe, you know, do like a connect the dots thing. So it's like, oh, yeah. you know, um, I gave this guy Ron Weasley. Uh, like, <laughs> Yeah. And I think the the main point before we start talking about some of the characters that would make good um, NPCs is that you don't necessarily have to draw only from fantasy or sci-fi because we're looking at personalities you can draw from Stephen King novels mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and you can understand how like the main character from the shining jack whatever his name is no mm-hmm. it's not even jack it's just the dull boy thing i mean uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm in a horror mindset after children of <laughs> ruin talking about it discussion yeah. but like you can have him as a character that's nowhere near fantasy yeah but because it's a personality you can drop him into your world and run with it Mm -hmm. so yeah it's a really good point with that with with that being said i think that it's cool to have a variety um but it's also just kind of fun to see like okay like hermione right like this know-it-all but loyal friend Uh um like that that's a fun character trait or pulling from like some of the other books that we've read like ender right like you could have like Mm. ender is kind of like the wizard the evil wizard right like flip it on its head instead of ender being the good guy he's the bad guy and how would how would he play in that right Um, and that's a good point like it doesn't have to be like an ender like character right like in other words it doesn't have to be a character that has you know that has the ender like traits or I, I not even traits like yeah. backstory it doesn't have to have like an ender style backstory oh yeah or like role in the story i guess that's what i'm trying to say but you just need it to have like these personality traits that are like based on a character that you know what, what are some that are coming to your head I'm, uh, that, that you think would be fun yeah i think um because 
I'm thinking of like caricatures, like anime comes to mind. I know we kind of like typically group anime into like fantasy, it's yeah, not strictly, okay. but like, yeah. but like Aaron, right? Attack on Titan. Yes. You know, or, uh, or Al from Full Metal Alchemist, like this, like very like naive yeah. and like loyal friend or whatever. Um, and some of these yeah. are like, uh, you don't necessarily, like some of these are very strong, very well-developed characters. It's like, do I really need my barkeep to have like this level of you know, <laughs> of morality or whatever? Like maybe not, but you know, so maybe there's a little bit of choices that you make there as a GM of how much do I want this character to like have a character? Like how much do I want them to be like developed or how much do I want maybe the players to just kind of like skip over this part or, or, or not like, yeah. you know, have like this super <laughs> interesting backstory for this like traveler that they met on the road or maybe you do, right? Either way is okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe you make game time I, decisions and as they ask more questions, you're like, <laughs> okay, now I need like an actual backstory for this guy. I'm going to like develop right. him into, I, I, I don't know, develop him into uh, cactus from yeah yeah <laughs> red rising red rising oh. you probably if you didn't listen to the red rising episode that was a bad inside joke but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's fair um but i do want to i do want to talk about what you just said and it when i when i'm using this technique when i'm creating characters it's not necessarily that i am giving them a huge backstory but mm-hmm. usually a lot I would say probably 90% of the NPCs that my characters interact with have some sort of background in literature. Um, And that is literally just because I want to give a unique experience. So if they ask, you know, where is the bar? How would Vin react versus how would Tony Stark react? Mm, Right. And so like they may never talk to him again, but, and you can reuse Tony Stark at that point, but it, it helps and, and this this may just be a me thing. I, my mind just may work weird, but it helps me kind of change up the interactions that the players are having with NPCs. If I role play through a separate character, so like you know, if they're asking Tony Stark where the bar is at, he may just blow him off instead of saying down the street and to the left, right? Right. And so you don't have to develop the entire backstory. It's more of thinking about how they would react to the characters in in the situation that they're in. Yeah. Or would the would he treat it more like uh like like ben, with benevolence like a host like Caesar or something from Hunger Games right where he's gonna like he'd be like oh come with me it's like right down here you know we'll we'll take a carriage or whatever I'll pay for it. I'll buy you know and then like you <laughs> right know, and and you can make this whole like I love of, your dress exactly I love your dress <laughs> um, oh aren't you scary <laughs> <laughs> you know um, and make this and and you can really like change it up I think something that I have fallen into as like a GM is I think like how would I react to that. Right. Yes. And and so then yeah. I end up like having very, uh, like the first reaction feels very normal. And then the second and third feels kind of like repetitive. And my yep. reaction as an introvert can be kind of standoffish where I'm like, you know, I don't like, <laughs> want to interact with you. And so then I like play that yeah. out. And it's like, well, that's not the point of the, the story, right? And that's not right. the point of your experience. Right. I found myself doing the exact same thing with you. And it was actually after a specific night. I couldn't tell you the date, but I could tell you like the session and what happened uh-huh. where I... I I was like reflecting on it after everyone left. I was like, I think every single NPC counter encounter that night went the exact same way. Okay. I was like, that is not interesting or fun. So how can I fix that? Mm-hmm. And this is just the method that I have found to use that. Yeah. So I, I think there's the obvious, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about here in a little bit of just like world building. And when you're not using a, a, a module that's given to you, but I think the other benefit of reading literature that, uh, you can use as a GM is kind of the descriptions or the scenario setting. Mm. Um, so much of the immersion in games in role-playing games comes from you describing the scene. So you say you walk into a bar is not very exciting, right? Uh, players are like, okay, like I can picture that. But if it's like, you know, the door creaks as you push it open, heads turn towards you as you walk into the dimly musty bar dimly lit musty musty bar like that's characters can kind of get into that a little bit more and Mm -hmm. i have found that the more i read the more i pick up on authors that are very good at setting the scene um and kind of stealing from that and this one's a little bit harder because it's not something that i consciously pull out and remember but it helps me kind of remember different adjectives or different scenarios or different settings that i can help describe the scene and i think like game of thrones does this really well yeah they describe the five senses and that's something that is huge in 
uh, when you're a GM is not just describing what the players see. Describe what they touch, feel, taste, and smell as well. Yeah. And when you're reading through like Game of Thrones, Martin does a really good job of that, of immersing <laughs> you into the story. I have played in a lot of games and a lot of different game um, master styles. And I guess the other thing that I would kind of talk about to this point on the reverse side is if you have a game master that is very good at describing a scene um one you got a special game master with you right now (laughs) so treasure them but the thing that i have found that i've just recently started doing is when a scene is being described to me i close my eyes because and then i just listen and i think about how my character would react based on the scene and everything around it because i have found myself i like you were saying earlier like the point is we're very much a left brain personality where we want the math we want the physics and so if someone's describing the precursor to a battle to me i have found myself already trying to figure out my first couple of turns where i want to go (laughs) and i lose (laughs) i lose all of those cool interesting details and what what i've learned recently is if i close my eyes and i focus on that just look kind of like live in the moment i also get um when they're describing the the broken rafter it's like oh cool can i like use that somehow Mm. or something like that so it, it helps both create a more immersive environment for your players as a gm but also as a player if you can listen to that and then pseudo gm yourself and describe oh off that broken raptor i'm going to swing hopefully pulling it down or something like that to kind of give a little bit more life to your story yep yeah yeah there's a couple things there that i want to kind of touch on the first i think is that as you are listening like you're saying as you're this this is a skill that you can sort of practice as a as a reader um, where you enter a you enter a scene and you can just kind of start to check in on how is the author kind of painting this picture in my mind and how well am I picturing it right either in an audiobook or in a, in a in a physical book like how how much of a grasp do I have on the like room that the characters are in or the the machinery that they are interacting with right or you know how like or this character like the their physical appearance right and you can start to key into those things and then kind of learn like, okay, were there things that the author described that helped me do that? Um, or were there things that they missed on? And now I have like a vague picture and I'm not quite as immersed as I would like to be. Um, and that can help you both as a player and as a GM, right? The second thing that's a good skill to learn um, is kind of how to question a GM, right? And we're, t- we're actually getting maybe a little ancillary to the topic now, but just how helpful it is to have a player um, who can ask questions like... Um, okay, can you describe to me, like you're talking about the rafters, right? Can you describe to me what the upper level looks like? Um, as you know, cause I, you maybe describe that there's a second mezzanine. People are looking down. You can ask them to like describe that in more detail. Um, or, or do I see anyone around what sort of, or maybe what sorts of characters am I seeing around the bar? Just as I'm, just as I'm, you know, viewing or, you know, rolling your perception checks or whatever it is, right? You can ask for like specific levels of detail, um, that help your GM, first of all, do like a little bit of world building, but also like, Again, the GM maybe didn't think of that beforehand, right? Didn't know that you were interested in like flipping off the ceiling or whatever you were thinking of pulling down the rafters or whatever you're thinking of doing. You know, what state of repair is the <laughs> are the shingles? <laughs> yeah, you know, or exactly. whatever. Um, that's maybe too specific of a question. But the point is just like, I think in our sessions, as we were like early on, um, we were kind of like focused too much on what we could like do, you know? So it was like, okay, what actions can I take? And like, who can I interact with? And less so of just like, kind of letting the story evolve and asking those questions and seeing what, what kind of comes out from like, uh, from the collective group, group imagination. Right. Yeah. And I have GM for players who do that. And it really helps you grow as a, as a GM as well. Like when, when they're asking those probing questions, it really makes you think. And then I guess this is kind of getting slightly more off topic, but on how, how you would describe the scene next time. Mm-hmm. But I, I I do think that it was a good it, that it's a good point to as you're listening or reading through a book, what works for you, what's not working for you, did it go on too long? Is it too short? Yeah. And just look kind of like be cognizant of that when you're describing scenes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the the world building aspect. This is an area that we've we've talked about in the world building episode specifically. But what, I think if what you the- want, I can just drop that episode in the audio and then we'll just call it good (laughs) it was called a night yeah yeah one of the more helpful then this probably specifically relates to homebrewing like 80 percent relates to homebrewing 
uh, and like the other 20%, like, yes, uh, campaign things, there are, there are still things that, um, when you're paying attention to world building that can be really helpful. Right. But in terms of like kind of getting ideas of like, wouldn't it be fun to play through a, a plot or a scenario kind of based around blank. Right. Um, and it just kind of gives you that yeah. like little bit of a canvas to kind of, to kind of like play in. There's a couple of like things that I had written down that kind of like immediately come to mind. Like, Oh, could, wouldn't it be, fun to play in sort of like maybe something that's sort of post-apocalyptic, like not literally because yeah. like that would be, you'd have to like advance technology all the way. And then, you know, like that, that wouldn't really <laughs> right. make sense. Um, but think like demon cycle we talk about a lot. Yeah. Oh, that's a good. Like one. how would a, how would a, you know, a role playing campaign look different if there were these like really overpowered demons or creatures or whatever. And you could use like a, like a, a creature that a, a monster that exists within the campaign or within the setting. Right. That like, only, but you like limit it. Like they only come out at night or something. And so, like every like you when players like travel like traveling is actually it's not just like quick traveling right like they have to actually figure out how <laughs> right, they're going yeah. to do that or or something like um like I, i'm reading through wool right now right and so post-apocalyptic is kind of on my mind um and and in wool if you if you were listening to our fireside episode is a is a story that takes place within like a silo and like it's sort of the size of like or the population size of like a city um, and everyone kind of like lives in there and so, you know, what if there was a city that was like totally isolated from everywhere else? For some reason, there's some sort of danger, you know, maybe it could be a physical danger. It could be um, a like a disease type of danger. It could be monsters type of danger, but something that isolates all of the characters, right? And so you're not like literally recreating wool into a campaign. That's not the point. The point is you're taking what makes wool or some or demon cycle or something like that interesting. And how can I kind of like take that concept and place it into a campaign? And would that be fun for my players? When, when you started talking, you took it in a completely different direction than what I was expecting you to take it, nice. which I think is the <laughs> less interesting or Aww. you took it into a more interesting <laughs> direction. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I was like, wait, no, that, that didn't sound right. You took it in a more interesting direction, which I, I think is way more um, fun to talk about because the other direction is just like, okay, like you have like cool monuments, cool sure. cities and everything that you can recreate. And like, I think that's almost all we have to say on that topic. It's like, it, it's similar it's cool to the characters, to like, right? Right, it's similar to the characters. Yeah, it, like um, you're you're gonna get a little bit more recognition from characters. You put like Osgiliath right in the middle of your city, yeah. right? But like, <laughs> but if I need a castle of like primarily magic users, maybe I can base it on some of the quirky things about Hogwarts. Yeah, or, you know, like whatever. Sure. You yeah, can, you can pull in just like you can pull in characters to give them specific traits. You can pull in specific world building elements to give like your world specific traits. That works. Absolutely. Yeah. I know we've done that with shattered planes. Like we put that yeah. in our world, but so that, that's the lead, that's the less interesting part than what you brought up. And I think what you brought up is kind of more world building along plot lines, which mm. is a phenomenal idea and something that's really interesting. And I want to dive into a little bit more, yeah. especially kind of highlighting some of those, like what are some of the plot lines that you would like to play through or that you would like to game master through? One of them that I have wanted to run for ever since I read the book was I want to run um, a gentleman's bastards uh, plot line, mm. like a thieving where you have to, you know, grab all of the treasure at the exact right time and have this. I think that would just be a phenomenal, like maybe like one to three shot campaign yeah. that just like, I love that story. I love that idea. I, I think that that would be a really cool one to do. Yeah. Are there any more that jumping to your head? I have a couple, but I wanted to just bounce back. Yeah. And forth yeah. Yeah. I, I want to build off of that a little bit because I did one time run a very short one shot that was that was heist based. It, it wasn't, it, I was very inexperienced at the time. And so it wasn't as like fleshed out, but it was really fun to take role playing can boil down to, okay, you do some stuff and then you fight the big boss at the end and then, and then you win. Right? Yeah. It, it yeah. can be easy to get there. Um, and so it was the concept of like the one shot was that there, and I think it was more closely based on maybe like Jack of thieves, which is another yeah. like heist book it's actually not a very good book um nope it was kind of like <laughs> interesting meh. concepts but eh. it was basically like oh there's a thieving guild and there's this super awesome thief and he's in the thieving guild that's the concept of the book <laughs> um, oh and hold up he steals stuff he steals stuff and he's pretty good <laughs> at it and yeah it just kind of sucks it's weird i don't even know how we stumbled onto that book but we read it and we it's fine. The book doesn't matter. The point I think is, it was a, I think it was free. I, I just oh, to point I think that you're out right. There. Actually, I think, I think it was like a, it was like one of those buy one get ones that Audible runs sometimes, or is like a free. Yeah. Like if you download it today, it's free. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. Right. I don't think I spent one of our coveted credits on. It. That's good. That's good. But there, I, so like the kind of concept of the one shot was 
one of the players has a f- like family relation to a um, to a high ranking member in a thieving guild, and so now the players have to like participate in this like heist that's happening in this like lord's mansion or whatever. And so they had like access to like kind of some inside resources. They could like ask me questions around like, um, oh, like what are the you know, uh, what are the, what are the guards like, and what are are there any events coming up? And and so there was a party coming up or something. So they were going to try and run the heist on this Lord's Mansion during this party. And um, so they, yeah, you know, and so they kind of got to do like some of the planning aspect. And um, there still were like skills that they had that were like involved. And I think there like ended up being a fight breaking out or whatever. So there was an encounter in it, but it kind of like the start of the thought was like, oh, how could I like run a heist? And then it was like, well, Jack of Thieves had this interesting concept of like a family relation in an existing thieving guild or whatever. Like, could we run with that? And then and then it kind of played out. That, yeah, I, I like that idea. Um, Another one that I've kind of thought that would be a fun like plot world building. You brought up Stephen King earlier um, and it reminded me of 11 um, which we've talked about on the podcast. Oh, it's been yeah. a little while, but... The concept is a guy accidentally goes back in time, um, and then he's try- he decides to try and stop the JFK assassination, which happens on 11-22-63, the name of the book, and kind of like <laughs> the bad guy is like time or like history um, that is right. sort of trying to make events happen as they were supposed to happen, and so as he like goes to like do something, he has to drive real fast to get to a certain spot, and then all of a sudden there's this car crash in front of him, and it, like he has to get out of his car, and you run, you know, and, like that's kind of what's indirectly opposing him. And so that would be, I think, the part that would be interesting to like pull into something else is if there was a an indir- a force that was indirectly opposing the player characters and they didn't know why, right? Which maybe you could treat it as like they, you know, their characters did go back in time, but that's like revealed later or something. Yeah, I know you could do that or you could not. That's you could cool. Leave it. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Also, so if if you run any of these ideas, I need progress reports from you, listeners. So if you're running with one of these ideas, let me know how, or let us know how it goes because I'm interested. Yeah, you have you have full super interesting. You have full permission to like. We're just strict plagiarizing this from other books, so it's not like you're plagiarizing (laughs) if you steal this idea. Like, full, go ahead and run with it and just let us know how it goes. Okay, so one that I that I have thought of, which doesn't necessarily work in a traditional role playing setting, would be kind of emulating the Way of Shadows, which is um, a book that. I don't know if you read, but I definitely read it. I feel like I it's by the did. same, yeah. It's by Brent Weeks, who also did Lightbringer series, which I have learned that fact like three times now. <laughs> always am surprised, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because Lightbringer is significantly better than The Way of Shadows. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm wondering if, but The Way of Sh- I didn't read it, but I just think I did because it sounds like a book I probably would have read at one point. You know. <laughs> Yeah. So so the way of shadows follows a character who is almost like all powerful. He's amazing. He's just the greatest thing ever. He's Superman in a fantasy setting, which doesn't sound super interesting. But what's interesting about him is he is bound by different rules. Um, Wait, so he Brent has to Weeks follow- wrote that? Right, yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I had no idea. Are you serious? That's even, I think, Hold probably on, I need in to look like, my spreadsheet that like, because like, we track the books that we read and the authors. I just never made that connection that that's... Brent Reeks. You're right. That book sucks compared to Lightbringer. Yeah. It's not like it sucks. It's okay. It's just Lightbringer's really, really, yeah, it, really good. And that book's just like kind of okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. really funny. Sorry for interrupting. I <laughs> yeah. just had the same revelation that you've had like three times. Yeah. But I mean, I think it like wh- whatever the plot is, I'm, I'm not necessarily wanting to focus in on the plot. What I yep. think would be interesting is if you had a, um, a party of one or two players. So like there are three of you total, one's GMing and you can only find two other people to play with. I think it would be kind of interesting to run a campaign where you have two all-powerful PCs mm. where maybe like you do like a, a, a dual class. So one of the rules, I guess like a homebrew rule and specifically Pathfinder, which is what we play the most of, yep. is that every time you level up, you take a class or you take a level in two different classes. And so you're, you know, you're getting a lot more benefits. Oh, okay. You're a lot more powerful. It kind of completely breaks the game. But if you're only running with two PCs, player characters, it'd be, I think it'd be kind of interesting to run them up against like super interesting encounters and maybe morale counters rather than just strictly physical counters. Because you, in Pathfinder specific, especially, you can just break the game by running two, like a monk druid build is just like super mm. OP. But I think it'd be fun to have that option for players. I think it'd be a unique experience for the players, but also a fun, interesting exercise for the GM to how can you challenge those players? And it would also be kind of a way to play with the lower player count. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, 
because because you're right it, it like we we talk about like if a gm is like running a character in their own campaign it's kind of like a kind of like a babysitter type of character right <laughs> right um, yeah. where they're kind of trying to influence what the pcs are doing and that can be a little bit annoying but it would be really fun to uh, like the the thing that makes way of shadows interesting is that he does have like you're saying he's like he has these really strict rules and yeah that like end up being implemented in like just regular social situations right where he's like that's against the rules and everybody's like what are you talking about like, you, can, <laughs> you know what i mean you can Who's do that's fine but he's like but it's like actually a rule that is meant to like mean something else and have this really important meaning that he is like implementing like too far basically or too in too uh literal of a sense that um, that it kind of like affects <laughs> yeah. his social interactions and stuff so. to the extreme to the extreme i think that the first book of way of shadows is worth reading i think it's fun i think it has this <laughs> yes. really cool concept of like this overpowered character who has all these rules uh, but i think we read maybe through three or four books and kind of was like ah, i'm not really maybe wanting to continue <laughs> with this yep um, yeah another one that had um that had come to mind is what if magic is taboo or, or illegal, right? So I think of um, like the magicians. I like that. Or like, like Harry Potter. Yeah, I think it'd be really fun. Like you tell the PCs, like you have to create a character that uses magic in some way. Like I don't care which magic system you use, but like they have to be a type of magic user. And then maybe like only like cleric magic or whatever is like legal in your world, right? Like the they have basically like taken over. They've said that every other like type of magic is taboo and nobody's allowed to do it. Right. And so you can like you're allowed to like build a, a cleric type character, but now they have to have a reason why they're like with your party, that they're trying to escape the church or something like that. Um and your druid is like was right. raised in the forest and is in hiding, right? And your sorcerer was just like I don't know, he was like or like your wizard or something was like raised in the middle of a city, but like kind of the underworld part of the city where like he's trying to escape the law or whatever. Like that could make a, okay, the populace is kind of removed from magic, but your party specifically has access to it. And how does that change like their interactions in the world? That's, that's an awesome idea. I, I, I really like that. I think your ideas are way better than mine. Um, <laughs> mine are just like following stories where you're just like building like this really interesting uh, environment to live in. So well, I, you got to remember that, that I pressed this really question. Cool and so like, I, <laughs> <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> I'm not just working off the top of my head. Like you are, like I had thought through all of the books that we read and, and cherry picked the three topics or so that I thought would be really fun to do. Okay. What about one where the PCs have to take a piece of jewelry, maybe a ring, maybe, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it makes you invisible. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a ring of invisibility. Let's let's go. Let's run with that. Yeah. Let's run with I that idea. Um, I think it has potential. Yeah. They fight a demon. They go through some mines. There's a dungeon crawl. It's. I mean. It, yep. They. <laughs> oh, you can actually work in just to combine a little bit the way of shadows idea where there's like a really overpowered character who has very strict rules and you can run him. <laughs> Gandalf. I don't know. Just yeah. Oh, spitballing. I was thinking Gimli, but yeah. uh. <laughs> <laughs> never, yeah. never forget the time that Legolas blew a twenty-one to four lead at <laughs> the Battle of Helm's Deep, <laughs> or whatever it was. I don't remember the numbers. But. Choke, biggest choke choked. of the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, of the Third Age. <laughs> right, <laughs> biggest choke of the Third Age. It was ridiculous. <laughs> It's really a Cinderella story for Gimli. Uh, <laughs> no, I I love this back and forth brainstorming. I feel like we could do this all night, but kind of like I think this is a good time to kind of stop talking, at least on the podcast. We, we, we can continue talking off, but yeah. I, I don't want it to be continually just more and more and more ideas. But I do want to hear all of the ideas. And so for, for the listeners, do you have... Has, do you have a character or a campaign setting or a s specific monument or something that you would like or have included in a game that you have run or played in that you thought was really interesting or you think will be really interesting? I want to hear about that. I love role-playing games. Yeah. I don't get to play as much as I want to, I which There's probably so is a work, healthy thing. The only thing. <laughs> <laughs> so hard. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And work also gets in the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I also love hearing about role playing games. Um, I like hearing about it because most of the time when people are talking about role playing games, they're talking about it with such passion uh, because they really enjoy role playing games. For sure. I, I think that that is just something that I really enjoy hearing about. So let me know or let us know, like reach out to us, send us messages on Instagram, email join our discord let's talk about it in the discord all of those links can be found in 
in the show notes below. Um, we're on video, so I'm pointing. <laughs> <laughs> below the play button, which you just hit. You actually like, um, did point, by so, the way, to the Discord button on like like on my little taskbar. So I thought that was pretty neat. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I planned it. I've been practicing all week. So <laughs> I, I'm excited to hear hear what you think. And yeah, I hope I hope this inspired some something that will show up in a campaign that you are running or playing in at some point It'll in be your the life. greatest honor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Oh man. But yeah, I mean this was a great topic. I think that this turned out really fun. I, I love talking about role playing games. I love talking about books and I think that this was a perfect culmination of both of those topics. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the reason you said so. uh you know we could do this all night is because we have done this all night in the past. <laughs> oh absolutely yeah. Very yes. Cool. As always, it was great talking with you. I'm really glad that we got to do this. And I look forward Absolutely. to talking with you again on our next episode. Yep. Cheers, buddy. Till next time. Cheers. Cheers.